Let us turn in God's Word this morning to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1. Read the word of the Lord, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. In love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an, an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Wherefore I also after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power, and might, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Thus far we read God's holy and inspired word. May God bless the reading of his word unto our hearts. The text that we consider this morning is verses 13 and 14. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed. You are sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise 
of his glory. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the reasons why we love our God, one of the reasons why we gather Sabbath day after Sabbath day to worship our God, why he is pleasant and lovely unto us is this, our God is trustworthy. How many of you can relate to how loathsome it is when a person's word is not trustworthy? When somebody says he will do this or that for you, but then he doesn't carry through on his commitment. And then it's painful, it creates a division in the relationship. It's difficult to trust that individual who does not carry through on his word. How lovely, how beautiful is the truth that our God's word is dependable. Every promise of his word is fulfilled. And one of the promises of his word that is fulfilled, which we consider on this Pentecost morning, is the promise that he would give unto his church the Holy Spirit. It was a promise that God had made through the prophets of the Old Testament Joel especially prophesied of this in Joel chapter 2. God would pour out his spirit upon the church and they would have visions and understandings as a result of that Holy Spirit. They would be able to prophesy as the Holy Spirit guided the church. Jesus throughout his ministry promised that the Holy Spirit would come. I give unto you another comforter he told his disciples. He was the first comforter. I give another comforter. The second comforter that Jesus Christ would give unto his church was his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, Jesus told his disciples, will guide you. That's the power of the Spirit. He has the power to transform, to shape. He guides us into the truth. That was the promise of God, all throughout the Old Testament, that he would give unto his church the Holy Spirit. And then on Pentecost, the Spirit, promised Spirit, was poured out upon the church, accompanied by many signs. The cloven tongues as a fire, the ability to speak in many different languages, and then the sound as of a mighty rushing wind. How powerful, how irresistible is the Spirit of Jesus Christ, which he has poured out upon his church. And it is this work of the Spirit that the Apostle Paul speaks as he writes to the saints at Ephesus. He told them in the 13th verse, in whom ye also trusted after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that holy spirit of promise. Not the Holy Spirit who makes promises, but the Holy Spirit who was promised. You were sealed with that Spirit who was promised unto you. Let's consider this text this morning under the theme, Sealed with the Promised Spirit. 
First, we'll consider the truth of this. Second, the agent through which we are sealed. And then third, looking especially at the end of verse 14, consider the expectation that we have. The Ephesians, according to the first half of verse 13, had come to know the truth and had come to believe the gospel. After that, ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed. We do well to remember something here of the history of the city of Ephesus for us to see the transformation that took place in this city. The city of Ephesus was a Gentile city located in Asia Minor. It was a city that historically was a pagan city. There was no worship of Jehovah God, if any knowledge of Jehovah God. It was a city that, although they did not worship Jehovah God, yet they did worship a goddess named Diana. There were silversmiths throughout the city who created images of Diana and then who made a living off of selling these images, these silver images, unto the people. You'll recall Demetrius the silversmith, who, when the Apostle Paul came into Ephesus as a missionary, Demetrius became concerned that his livelihood was going to be impacted by people believing not Diana, but Jehovah God. And so there was resistance unto the gospel as the gospel came to Ephesus through the missionaries. Demetrius led an uproar of people as they clamored against the word that Paul brought unto them. As well throughout this city of Ephesus, there was witchcraft and sorcery. Recall that they had books, many, many books devoted to the, the practice of magic. In Ephesus. But then it was in this Gentile pagan city that there was a remarkable transformation that took place. Ephesians 2, verse 12 tells us that at that time, previously, they were without Christ. They were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. They were strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But then a change took place in Ephesus. Ephesians 2 verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes, you at one time, were far off, are made nigh. By the blood of Christ. They were brought nigh unto, that is, they were brought close unto Jesus Christ. They were made one with the people of God. The text that we consider this morning explains for us how that transformation took place. How did it happen that they who previously were ungodly, they, those who were aliens of the commonwealth, were now made nigh unto Jehovah God. Ephesians 1 verse 13 tells us how you heard the word of truth in whom ye trusted after that ye heard the word of truth. Not just any word that was brought unto the saints in Ephesus but a specific word, the word of truth. That word of truth is none other than the word of Christ. Christ came to Ephesus. 
Christ spoke to the Ephesians so that they were confronted with the Almighty God and King of the church. Christ confronted the saints in Ephesus through the preaching. And the saints in Ephesus heard that word of truth. It indicates there is a receptiveness on behalf of the people of God to listen to that word of truth. Out of all of that which could be heard, and there are many different things that could have been heard, many different words being taught, many different gospels, many different ways to be saved, out of all of the false gospels that were presented, the Ephesians heard that word of truth. They listened. What do we listen to? What fills our ears? They heard that word of truth, and then not only did they hear it, but they also believed the gospel, the gospel of your salvation in whom also after that ye believed. That's the effect of hearing the word of God with humility. One is given faith in his heart by the entrance of that word. The effect of that or the change that happened in them as they believed that word was a change that happened immediately. It's not as if the saints in Ephesus heard that word and then there was a lengthy pause, a period of questioning, a period of wondering whether or not that word was true or not. But the effect was immediate. They heard that word of truth and then they believed the gospel of their salvation. This was a very personal thing for them. The apostle says that it was the gospel of your salvation, the gospel which is given unto you personally, the good news that Jesus Christ came and died in your place, the news that Jesus Christ was raised on the third day that he was brought up into heaven, that he sits enthroned at God's right hand and rules over all things for your good. The saints in Ephesus were given that faith whereby they trusted and they believed the gospel of truth. So this then is the backdrop from which we consider now the words, they were sealed. Sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. You see, the question is, would they remain in that word? Yes, there was a remarkable and a sudden transformation that took place in Ephesus. But would it continue in Ephesus? And so the same question is considered by us as the people of God. For we too by nature are Gentiles. Those who are aliens of the commonwealth of Israel. We by nature are strangers from the covenants of promise. By nature having no hope and without God in the world. And yet you have heard that word of truth. You have believed that gospel of truth. But will it last? Will you remain 
as a child of God. The assurance that Paul gave unto the saints at Ephesus is this. You were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Sealed. Historically, sealing was an action that was performed by a king. The king would have a special ring that he would wear. He would take that ring and dip the ring into ink, and then with that ring, press that ring upon a document so that there would be the mark, the insignia of the ring of that king upon that document. The effect of the king sealing that document with his ring was twofold. The first effect that it would have upon that document is it would authenticate that document. If anyone saw that document with the mark of the king's ring upon it, the individual who looked at that document could have absolute confidence that this document was genuine. It was something that the king himself had laid his eyes upon, had read, and by pressing his ring upon it, had demonstrated that this is truth. The second effect of the king pressing his ring upon that document and sealing that document was he gave to that document authority, a binding and an enduring authority. And the more powerful that the king was, the more authority there was in that document that he sealed. And so it was the case, you'll recall, with the law of the Medes and the Persians, that that document, once it was sealed by the king, could not be changed. Even the king himself, when he heard that Daniel was going to be cast into the lion's den, could not change that law. It had lasting, enduring authority. And so in what sense then were the saints in Ephesus sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise? We understand certainly that the sealing that happened upon the saints in Ephesus was a spiritual sealing. There's not a physical mark from a physical ring that was placed upon them so that others who passed by could see that physical mark placed upon them. But the insignia that the Holy Spirit gives unto his people must be understood spiritually. And so what then is the spiritual mark that is placed upon the people of God. Well, just as we saw that there were two effects of kings throughout history as they sealed that document with their ring, so it is that for the people of God there are two effects upon us as we are sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. The first effect of being sealed with the Holy Spirit is this, beloved. We are, the Ephesians were, authenticated as the children of God. Just as for that king, when he sealed that document, and anyone then who saw that document with the mark of the king's ring upon it, had the confidence that this was an official document that the king himself had read and had marked as truth. So it is that for us as the children of God, as we are sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, we are given witness that we are are the children of God. They heard that word of truth. They believed that gospel. 
And then God, in his love for the saints at Ephesus, gave unto them the seal of the Spirit. And you know who is the primary beneficiary of being authenticated as the child of God? It's not so much so that others around, as they look upon us, can see that we are the children of God, though that is true as well. But beloved, it's especially for you and for me that God gives to us this seal. It's because we are prone to doubt whether or not we truly have a living relationship with Jesus Christ. It is because of the weakness of our faith, because of the fears and doubts that rise up in our minds, that God gives to us the seal of the Holy Spirit so that we can know I am the child of God. The second effect of being sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise was that it gave unto Rather, that it it preserved the Ephesians in their salvation. Recall, that was the second effect of the king placing his ring upon that document. And not just authenticated that document, but it also gave unto that document binding and enduring authority, which document then could not be changed. And that's the second power of receiving this seal that God gives unto us in His his love. It gives unto us the confidence that we will remain a child of God. For as long as God is pleased to have us remain upon this earth, for as long as we fight against that threefold enemy upon this earth, We have no reason to doubt, but that God will sustain us and preserve us in our salvation. This is the Reformed truth of the preservation of the saints. It is a truth that arises out of the eternal counsel and foreknowledge of God. It is because God himself has predestinated us unto the adoption of children in Jesus Christ. It is because God has eternally set His love upon us and drawn us unto Himself in that decree of election that then those who are chosen by God in His love will never fall away from the grace and from the favor of God. Though it is the case that the children of God fall even into great and serious sins. The Scriptures record the sins of Peter, David. Yet God will not permit a single one of His children to fall from His grace and from His favor. For we've been sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Who is the agent who seals us? The text tells us that the one who performs this work of sealing is that Holy Spirit of promise. It's not us. It's not of us because of us that we're sealed. 
We need to be reminded of this. For how often do we not doubt? How often do we not fall into a form of pharisaical thinking, works righteousness thinking, imagining that it's because of our good works, because of prayers that we offer, because of devotion unto God, because of the alms that we give to the causes of the kingdom, that therefore God ought to love us at least a little bit. It's not because of us. We don't seal ourselves, nor is it the case that we who are parents seal our children in their salvation. No amount of love that we show to our children can seal them. No amount of correction, discipline, using the rod can seal them. No amount of worry, fretting about the salvation of our children can seal them. The text does not say that we are sealed with the holiness of our parents. Certainly parents must be faithful in rearing up their children, praying for them, disciplining them, correcting them, and using the rod, but never is it because of the work of the parents that the children are sealed. Rather, the text tells us that we are sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. We are sealed with the living God Himself, for the Spirit is the third person of the triune God. When Jesus Christ ascended up on high, then the Father gave unto the Son the promise of the Spirit. And the Son, as He received the Spirit of the Father, did not retain the Spirit for Himself, but the, but the Son of God shed forth the Spirit of God upon the early New Testament church. And as the Spirit was poured out upon the church, the Spirit came upon the church with unstoppable power. Pictured by the wind, the sound of the mighty rushing wind that was heard by the saints on that Pentecost day as the wind goes forth with power, invisible, and yet that wind goes forth with power so great that it can destroy buildings and objects of men. So the Holy Spirit, unseen by the human eye, yet goes forth with unstoppable power. And the Spirit, that living Spirit of God, as He enters into the hearts of God's children, He is the one who gives unto them that seal. The text is emphatic in emphasizing the holiness of the Spirit. More literally, the end of verse 13 could be translated this way. The Spirit of promise that Holy One. You are sealed with the Spirit of promise, that Holy One, that One who is devoted unto God with perfect devotion, the One who goes forth from God as the holy breath of God, who proceeds from the Father and from the Son. The one who, as he goes forth from God, does not, as it were, leave God behind, but who returns to God. He draws the children of God unto God, for he is the Holy Spirit. That's, beloved, how he authenticates us as the children of God. He changes us. So that we who once delighted in the works of darkness, so that we who gave in to the temptations and the lusts of the flesh, 
and who didn't even have a desire to fight against the lusts of the flesh, now being filled with that Holy Spirit of promise, are given not only the desire to live a life of holiness unto God, but are given also the power of sanctification. That's the work of the Holy Spirit as he authenticates us as the children of God. He makes us to be holy as God is holy. And in doing that, he preserves us in our salvation. Not because of what we have done. Not because of who we are but by the Holy Spirit of promise, we're sealed. And then the text goes on in describing the agent of our salvation. He's the earnest, our earnest. Verse 14, which is, speaking of the Spirit, which is the earnest of our inheritance earnest not a term so familiar to us it's a banking term somebody goes to the bank and desires to take out a loan there's the loanee who seeks the money from the bank and then there's the loaner who gives the money. If the loanee is going to receive that money from the bank, the loanee must give a commitment that he's going to pay this money back to the loaner. He can't just steal the money, but he has to have a, have a promise that he's going to pay this money back to the bank from which it came. And so what the bank requires of the loanee is that the loanee make a down payment. And that down payment is a promise, a commitment that I'm going to give you the rest of the money. Here's, here's part of the money that I owe you, but the rest will be made in future payments. That down payment that is given to the bank as a commitment that you will pay off the rest of the loan is the earnest that you give them. And now here the scriptures speak of the Holy Spirit as being the earnest. And so there is a loaner and there is a loanee. There's one who is making a promise that more will be coming. There is one who is indebted unto another. Now, if we were to consider this for a moment and consider, okay, who's the loanee and who's the loaner? Well, it would, it would make sense to us most naturally that we would be the loanee, we're the ones indebted, and that God is the loaner, that God gives unto us something, and we promise that we will make payments unto God. That would make sense, would it not? For after all, God has given unto us everything that we have. It's in Him that we live and move and have our being. And yet the remarkable statement of this text is not that we are indebted unto God, that we give unto God the down payment or the earnest and promise unto God that more is going to come in the future. But rather, beloved, it's the exact opposite. God, as it were, becomes indebted unto us. God gives unto us, the earnest of the Holy Spirit. 
God gives unto us the commitment. Here, here is the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is, as it were, a down payment. There's more that I'm going to give unto you in the future. I'm going to give unto you all of the rest of the blessings later on, but for now I give unto you this earnest, which is God's promise unto us that there are future blessings in store for His people. The down payment, the earnest that God gives unto us is none other than the Holy Spirit of promise. Which is, Paul says, the earnest of our inheritance. There's a full inheritance that awaits us. Riches beyond measure that await the child of God. Joy and peace and happiness and satisfaction in the presence of God. To use Old Testament language, there is the inheritance of a land, the promised land of Canaan, a land that is rich, flowing with milk and with honey, a land where there is peace and where there is safety from the enemies of God, a land where God has driven out any who would afflict his children. That there is the inheritance that awaits the child of God. But until that day, God gives unto us the earnest of our inheritance, which is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit gives to us a taste of what those blessings in heaven will be. You go to the bank and take out a loan and you make the down payment. It's not as if the down payment is one form of currency, but then the rest of the payments are a different form of currency. No, it's all the same. Well, so it is then for us, as God gives to us the Holy Spirit, which is the earnest of our inheritance. It's not as if God on this earth gives us one form of blessing, but then in heaven he's going to give an essentially different blessing. No, the Holy Spirit is our inheritance. The Holy Spirit gives unto us the blessings earned for us by Jesus Christ himself. All that Jesus has earned for us through his lifelong suffering, through his condescension, even into the depths of hell. The righteousness, the holiness, the peace that Jesus Christ has earned for us, the Spirit gives unto us a foretaste of that while we are upon this earth. The expectation that we as the children of God have then is that we will be preserved in our salvation. The Spirit will seal us until, according to verse 14, until the redemption of the purchased possession. Right now, He seals us. He seals us until the redemption of the purchased possession. And the idea here is that we are purchased. We've been bought. Bought with the blood of the Lamb. But we have not yet been redeemed unto Jehovah God. That is, we have not yet been fully brought out of the sufferings and the trials that belong to the life of the member of the church militant. And so until then, we are fully redeemed, fully brought unto Jehovah God, 
we are sealed with the earnest of our inheritance. Might be illustrated this way with the practice that has been used in ancient history and in other lands of a wedding dowry. A man who seeks marriage, he finds a woman whom he wants to marry, but for him to be able to marry that woman, he must give a dowry to the father of that woman. And so he labors hard in order that he might save up enough. He then gives the money for the dowry unto the father of that woman. The father receives that money. He agrees to give his daughter unto this man in marriage. And so legally, that woman has been purchased with with the dowry money. And yet, the wedding is still being planned. The marriage has not yet been consummated. Purchased, but not yet redeemed. And so the Holy Spirit preserves us until the redemption of the purchased possession. Already we've been bought, but until at last we are brought as the glorious bride into the home of our beloved Savior Jesus Christ in heaven, he preserves us in our salvation. He preserves us by the means of grace which He gives unto us. He preserves us by the Word. We mustn't separate the preservation of the saints from the Word of God. The Apostle Paul ties the two together in verse 14, 13 rather, after that he heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also that after the, that ye believed, ye were sealed with that holy spirit of promise. First they heard that word of truth, and then they were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Always God uses the Word as it is proclaimed as the means by which He secures His people in their salvation. Think of the Old Testament Israelites in the wilderness. God preserved them. He sustained them. How? By the manna that he sent from heaven by the water, that he gave them from the rock. It would have been foolish of the Israelites to say, well, I know that God will preserve me. I know that God sustains me, so I'm not going to eat this manna. I'm not going to drink this water, for I trust that God can preserve me by whatever means God wants to preserve me. Just as foolish as it would have been for the Israelites to say that about the manna and the water, so foolish it would be for the New Testament saint to say, well, I believe that the Holy Spirit is going to preserve me, and I believe that the Spirit can preserve me by whatever means He wants, and so I'm not going to make use of that spiritual meat and drink that God has provided for me. I don't need the means of grace. I don't need to come unto God's house. I don't need to spend time in prayer and devotions unto God, for I trust that God could preserve me however God wanted to preserve me. The question is not, how could God preserve us? But the question is, how does God preserve us? Let us not tear asunder what... God has brought together. He preserves his people by the means 
of his word. And so it is then that we live unto the praise of his glory. As Paul concludes the 14th verse. We live to the praise of his glory because it is evident at every step of salvation that God is the one who delivers us and brings us into the glories that await. We live to the praise of his glory because God is the one who chose us in the everlasting, eternal counsel of election. We live to the praise of his glory because God is the one who purchased us so that we are now his purchased possession, bought not with gold or silver, but with the precious blood of the Lamb. We live to the praise of his glory because God is the one who has caused us to hear that word of truth. Out of all of the people upon this earth, God chose us to hear that word of truth. We live to the praise of His glory because God is the one who gives us that Holy Spirit of promise whereby we are sealed. All praise be unto Jehovah God. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we give thanks unto thee for thy great love which thou hast revealed unto us. We thank thee, Father, not only for the gift of our salvation accomplished at the cross, but also that thou dost give unto us the earnest of our inheritance so that we might know that we belong unto thee and that nothing will ever separate us from thy love. Would thou preserve us by thy grace, send us home with thy blessing. For Jesus' sake we pray this. Amen. <laughs>